Let's um, just bow in prayer now, shall we? Father in heaven, we, uh, again, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it brings uh, life to our souls. And we uh, thank you for uh, the, the fact that we can hear your word here and the uh, children can be taught your word in the hall. We just do pray for your Holy Spirit to be working in our minds and our hearts and uh, uh, developing our understanding of you more clearly and uh, helping us to, uh, to trust you and love you and to serve you more as we ought. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want you to think about what kind of uh, people, uh, what kind of people uh, does God use in order to achieve his purposes? And I, I'm, I suspect and I hope that uh, in your mind that you would be thinking of, well, they're a person who trusts in the gospel, uh, they're a person who is humble and gracious, and they're a person who is willing to be used by God. That's kind of, that would be great. But um, I wonder if sometimes our thinking can become clouded by other factors. Um, like, for example, a person's family background. Uh, take, for example, the, the person who grows up in a godly, gospel-centred family. Uh, that's a great privilege, isn't it? Uh, when your mum and dad have taught you about the Lord Jesus uh, from uh, very early on in life. And uh, people in that situation may very well uh, go on to be used very mightily by God. And that's one of the reasons why we, we want to be teaching and, and training our children uh, in the ways of the Lord. But is it always the case? And what about the, um, what about the person whose life has been messy? Uh, or the young person growing up in a dysfunctional family, a family which is marked by conflict and uh, where relationships are messy and tangled? How easily does that kind of scenario fit in with our expectations of the kind of person that God would use to achieve his purposes. Now, the reason I raise this issue is because, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, over the next uh, couple of months, we're going to be, uh, as we get into the book of Genesis again, we're going to be focusing on one particular family, and that is the family of Isaac. And as we do that, we're going to see that it was a pretty messy, mixed-up kind of family. Uh, in fact, uh, it reads more like a soap opera than, than it does reading about people that we ought to be actually seeing as examples to follow. Uh, words like favouritism, uh, scheming, deceit, hatred, betrayal. These are the kind of words which fit very easily into the story of the family of Isaac. And I would hope that uh, there might even be times over this series when we're going to be asking the question, you'll be asking the question, could God really use people like that? Now the soap opera begins in our passage today. Uh, in fact, if uh, the family of Isaac was a movie, chapter 25 of Genesis could serve as the trailer for the movie because uh, in this chapter the big family problems find their 
can I say, their genesis, their beginning, uh, is found in this chapter. Um, can I get you to open up at Genesis chapter 25? And uh, now, if by any chance we happen to have forgotten who Isaac is, well, the first couple of verses uh, remind us of who he is in verses 19 through to 21. Uh, Isaac, he's the, the son of Abraham. Uh, he married a, a young girl by the name of Rebekah. And Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. That's mentioned to us in the first couple of verses. Laban, by the way, is going to become a, uh, emerge as a significant personality in the story over the next few chapters. Now, why is it important <clears throat> that Isaac was the father of Abraham? It's because of the promises, isn't it? It's because of the promises that God made uh, to Abraham. Actually, God reminds Isaac of those promises in chapter 26, which we're not going to look at in any great detail. But if you have a look at chapter 26, verse 3, see what it says. It says that the, the Lord, uh, this is what the Lord said in uh, verse 3 to Isaac. He said, stay in this land for a while and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offsprings all nation on earth will be blessed. That's the, um, what are the three promises that God made to Abraham? Uh, and uh, you, you can cheat by looking at your sheets. Uh, the three promises. What was the first big promise? It begins with L. It was a land. land. The second was a people. And the third was a blessing. A land, a people, and a blessing. Now, that, that is really important because those promises are always in the background. And without those promises in the background then uh, you'd have to say that the dysfunctional family life of Isaac does appear to be rather meaningless. Um, now, very soon, Cassie and I will celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary uh, in April, but we're actually going to be celebrating it this week because we've got a bit of time to go away to Sydney and so on. And uh, as I reflect on our 25th wedding anniversary about to tick over, I'd have to say that at this stage of life, that life is, is very rich for us as we, um, you know, as we um, experience our children moving uh, you know, uh, into adulthood. Not too soon, Alyssa, okay? But uh, moving into, into adult, adulthood, it's a, it's a great time of life. And yet, as this story begins, Isaac and Rebecca were looking forward to celebrating their 20th wedding anniversary. Anyone know what colour that is or what metal that is? That's the silver wedding anniversary. So what is it? 20th equals, eh? I don't know. Who cares? Okay. The, the bottom line is that they, their 20th wedding anniversary was about to tick over, but it was bittersweet for them because they had no children. Now, that's a, that's a challenge for any couple, but especially for the couple through whom God had promised many descendants. 
because Isaac was the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah had been barren, hadn't she? How did they try to solve the problem of Sarah's barrenness? Well, they brought in other women, didn't they? You know, here's Hagar, my maidservant, have her. You know, she can bear the child. But unlike Abraham and Sarah, who brought in another wife to try to solve the problem of barrenness, what did Isaac do? Well, in verse 21, what did he do? He brought the matter before the Lord in prayer. And so we see that there's a certain godliness about Isaac. Now, as we read on, we might think he might have wondered a little bit later if he'd prayed too hard. Because when, Rebecca, when God made Rebecca pregnant, there was turmoil inside her womb. Uh, now, she had no idea what was happening. And so she thought, well, you know, if we asked God to make me pregnant, maybe I can go and ask God to tell me what's going on with the pregnancy. And so we're told that she went in verse, uh, uh, we're told that she went um, most probably to a prophet and uh, to ask God what was going on. Now have a look at verse 23, because this is what the Lord said to her. It says, she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, here's the prophecy, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Right? The older will serve the younger. Now basically, what's the bottom line here? What's God's answer to her question about what's happening inside me, Lord? What's God saying? He's saying you're having twins. Now she, that's not quite clear to her at this stage necessarily. Um, but by the way, in verse 22, where it says that the babies jostled with each other, um, a more literal translation, apparently, would be that they smashed their bodies against each other. There's a bit more violence there than simply jostled. Uh, some ladies here, I'm sure, have had a rough pregnancy, but uh, Rebecca really had a rough pregnancy. Notice this. Notice that in God's answer that this clashing in the womb is just the beginning of what will be a colourful future. Um, have a look again at verse 23. In verse 23, uh, you know, uh, each, it seems that each new line in the prophecy uh, with each new line, the relationship becomes somewhat worse. So it starts off, two nations are in your womb. Then two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now notice that last promise, the older will serve the younger. And let's just pause there for a moment. In the culture of the ancient world, there was a lot of significance placed on the firstborn son. I think that we, we still see that in some cultures today, don't we? Um, to some extent, we see it in our own culture. Uh, anyone here from a, fa from a farming background will know 
that uh, when it comes to uh, inheriting the farm, who does the farm normally go to? It normally goes to the firstborn son. And there's good economic rationale behind that. If you split the farm up between everyone, it would be unviable. But held together, it's actually viable. Uh, in, in upper class 19th century English culture, the custom was that the firstborn son would inherit the, the entire estate. Uh, but then the parents would use their connections in order to set their younger sons up in respectable professions. Uh, most notably, the military, medicine, and the church. Which, when you think about it, that kind of goes part way to explaining why the church in England in the 19th, 19th century was in such a spiritual mess because it was seen as a clergy were there for a career option. But in the ancient world, because the family line uh, was seen to proceed to, from the father, uh, when you look at the genealogies, uh, it's always the father begat the son, who begat the son, begat the son, and so on. It doesn't go through the uh, maternal line, it goes through the uh, paternal line. Uh, in the ancient world, the firstborn son was seen uh, to be the first sign of the father's strength. And with that came privilege. Now, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 and following, which I've actually printed for you on your sheets. You can have a look at this uh, later on. That uh, this idea of the firstborn son had some legal implications. And uh, what we see in Deuteronomy 21 is that it meant that the firstborn son would receive a greater inheritance, not the whole estate, but a double portion of the estate. So that if, for example, a man had three sons, when he died, his estate would be divided up into four portions and the firstborn son would receive two of those portions. In the case of Isaac, that would end up being a very considerable amount because in uh, chapter 26, verses 13 and 14, we're told that he became very, very wealthy. Uh, he was actually the first of the patriarchs to uh, be a guy who grew crops, but he also had livestock. He had so many sheep and so many cattle that the Philistines amongst whom he lived were very, very envious of him and even a bit fearful of him. So a double portion of his estate for the firstborn son was a considerable amount of wealth. That's the first thing about the firstborn. The second thing about the firstborn is that before a father died, he would normally bless one of his sons with headship over the family. Uh, he would transfer headship from himself to one of his sons. Now, guess what son that would normally be? That would normally be the 
firstborn son. Not always, but normally. And so that was the societal expectation. But in this prophecy, God takes that normal expectation and he turns it upside down. For it is the older son, it is, the first, it is not the older son, it is not the firstborn who would become the head. In the prophecy, instead, it is the older who would serve the, the younger. So this is turning the culture upside down. Now, this issue of the firstborn therefore becomes very, very interesting when you've got twins and when you've got two baby boys that are coming out of the womb at almost the same time. Have a look at verse 24. In verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And that's the critical issue. It's the, the, the fact that they're boys. Twin boys in the womb. And the first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau, which means red. If he was an Aussie, what would we name him? We'd name him not red, but we'd name him Bluey, wouldn't we? And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means he grasp. So, and it tells us that, uh, uh, that, that um, Isaac was 60 when all of this happened. But the two names, he's red. The other name, he grasps. And in that, particularly in that second name, he grasps. It's kind of like a symbol of how this relationship was going to develop. Jacob is the second born. But later on in life, as a grown man, he would grasp Esau's heel again. He would grasp for himself the position and the privileges which rightly belong to the son who breaks the womb, who's first out. And we see the, how this uh, begins to play out in the rest of the chapter, in verses 27 through to 34. Now, some brothers, you can grow up in the same family, but in terms of your personality, you can be chalk and cheese. Have you noticed that? Yeah. You know, my brother, um, i got a really good relationship with him. Uh, he is most at home when he's with a few of his mates. Uh, he's out on his board, out past the break, on a lonely beach that they've just discovered, uh, just waiting for a great wave to come through. Now, as much as I would love to be as much as I dream, I'm never going to be like that. <laughs> a bit chalk and cheese. Jacob and Esau were chalk and cheese. Um, Esau, an outdoors kind of man. He's a skilled hunter, just loves to be out in the open countryside, uh, sleeping under the stars and going after the wild beasts. That's Esau, Jacob, quiet stay-at-home kind of guy. 
Um, he would have tended to the crops. He would have looked after the sheep and cattle. And no, none of this sleeping, you know, in a swag under the stars. He, he wants a tent. <laughs> now, that could have been a very good combination in the family, except perhaps for the fact that their parents played favourites. And uh, so that uh, Isaac, he loved Esau. Esau was dad's, dad's boy. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Jacob, well, he was mum's boy. Rebecca loved him. And that playing off, that favouritism, uh, meant that this relationship was an explosion that was waiting to happen. It was Jacob who lit the fuse. You know the story, don't you? Uh, Esau comes home one day and he's famished. He's exhausted. He's, he's just... He's just dying for something to eat. And Jacob, well, he's just cooked up a big pot of stew. Uh, and uh, we're told that Esau saw that it was red stew. Uh, we read later on that it was lentil stew. And I discovered about an hour and a half ago there's such a thing as red lentils, <laughs> which answered a question for me. All right? But in what looks like a calculated move, uh, Jacob exploits the moment. He'll share the food, but at a price. And what will it cost? The birthright of the firstborn. The double share of the inheritance. Now, as far as Esau is concerned, he's not thinking big picture kind of stuff here. He's thinking about his belly. And he's thinking, look, I'm hungry, I'm starving, you know. If I can get some food in my belly, I'm just going to die and the inheritance won't mean anything to me. Just give me the food. And so he, verse 33, they swore an oath. So that meant that Esau signed on the dotted line. He sold his birthright to his brother. So that's the beginning of of the soap opera. But I guess the question, the kind of stuff we need to th think through is, well, all right, interesting story, but how does that, what does that teach us about God and his ways? And how does it help me to live as a Christian person uh, under God? And in terms of the implications, we're actually helped out uh, by the New Testament because uh, as far as I can see, the New Testament draws out at least two implications from the story of Jacob and Esau. The first one is about God's choice. See, the Bible teaches that when a person becomes a Christian, that is, when a person to faith in Christ and repents of their sin then it's actually not because of anything good or spiritual within that person that they do that. Because in our natural state of sin, we are spiritually dead, cut off from God. And someone who is spiritually dead, or someone who is physically dead, is incapable of bringing themselves back to life. Is that right? Very true. 
it's, a, it's the same in the spiritual realm. It's the same with spiritual death. If we are spiritually dead in our sins, then we are incapable of reviving ourselves. What is required is for God, by his Holy Spirit, to enter our lives and to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that respond to him. So that our thoughts and our feelings about God and about the world and about ourselves are irresistibly changed by the power of God's Spirit. Uh, so just to illustrate that, um, th I think about my own life. Uh, for all of my life, up to a certain point, I was a non-Christian. Without God, uh, Jesus meant nothing to me, God meant nothing to me. I was living for myself and for my own goals and so on. I was without God and without hope in the world. And then one day, uh, someone shared the gospel with me. And as I sat and uh, this person shared the gospel with me, I listened with my ears, I thought about it with my brain, and I made a decision which came a decision which came from my heart. And I would say that that night, for the first time in my life, that I went to bed at peace with God. Now, who was responsible for that? Was it me? Was there something better or more godly or more spiritual about me that, uh, uh, the, uh, that I would accept the gospel as opposed to the next person who might listen to the same gospel and reject it? Was I more spiritually alive? Well, I can tell you from first-hand experience, folks, no, I was spiritually dead. I was dead. I was without God. I was without trust. I was without hope in the world. But God, by his spirit, unplugged my ears. He uh, opened my mind and he replaced my heart. And so the question then is, who therefore gets the glory and the praise. Can I say, well, you know what? I was smart enough to repent. Uh, or I was spiritual enough to believe the gospel. Can I say that? Can I boast about that? Can I say that there was... No. No. Who is it who gets the glory and praise? Well, it is God and him alone. Because although God uses our physical faculties, when you step back, when you think about what's actually happened, you know that it's because God in his Holy Spirit who has done these things. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul takes issue with people who thought that they could somehow be good enough in order to merit God's favour, uh, that they could be religious enough, that they could be moral enough, or that they could be Jewish enough, 
because being a physical descendant of Abraham, perhaps that's something about me that means that I deserve God's favour. Um, have a look at what Paul says. you mind flipping in your Bibles over to page 801, uh, where you'll find Romans chapter 9? <clears throat> because uh, here, Paul, uh, Romans 9, uh, picking it up at verse 10, having sp spoken about Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham, he goes on. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 10, and this is what he says. He says this. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see what it's saying there? The point is that uh, uh, the twins had not even been born yet. They hadn't had the chance for either of them to do anything good or bad, but God had already determined which one would be the one who would receive favour. Now, some people might say, and they do say, <clears throat> that, well, that's just not fair. It's not fair that, that God chooses some, <clears throat> but he doesn't choose others. And uh, that, <clears throat> that, that uh, in some senses, offends our sense of... Uh, and, uh, but what we need to think about is the nature of mercy... Because when a person is being merciful, you can't actually question their decision. Their decision is up to them. Mean that God would actually not choose anybody. We have talked about that uh, last year when we did the um, uh, Super Sunday on the issue of predestination and election. But the point is this. The point is that there was nothing good about either Jacob or Esau. But God did the unexpected. He chose the one which society would not have chosen. He chose the second-born to be the one through whom God would fulfil his promises. And he did that, didn't he? Because as we'll see later on in the story that uh, Jacob's name was eventually changed. Jacob was given a new name. It was the name Israel. Israel. And uh, Israel's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel the nation of Israel, which means, therefore, that it is through the family line of Jacob slash Israel that the Saviour is born, Jesus Christ. Whereas the family line of Esau became the Edomites, who were always, interestingly, jostling 
with the Israelites. Friends, throughout the Bible, God chooses all sorts of people to do great things for him. He does choose people from godly families. Uh, Timothy is a great example of that. Paul says, Timothy, you've known the truth because since from infancy you've been taught the scriptures from your mother and from your godly grandmother. And so Timothy would have been one of these guys who would say, hey, I've never known a time that I didn't know the Lord. I've just always grown up knowing him and loving him because I've come from a God. And God did great things through Timothy. God does great things through people from godly families. And so mums and dads here, grandparents, teach your kids. Teach your kids the scriptures and to know and to love and serve the Lord. But he also chooses and calls unexpected people, doesn't he? In the scriptures we see that God chooses and calls the poor, the widow, the tax collector, the prostitute, the younger son, and people from families that are all very, very messy. And in every case, no matter who he calls, in every case what he is doing is he is making a display. He's making a display uh, to uh, this world. He's making a display to the people of this world. He's making a display to his enemy, Satan. He's making a display to the powers and the principalities and all authorities of his mercy. Of his mercy. Proving again and again that it's not about us and our goodness, but it's about God and his graciousness and his mercy towards even the unexpected. Now I said there's two implications that the New Testament draws from this particular chapter. And the other one is this. You see, if God has chosen us, if he has elected us, if we are people who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, and if we're trusting in his resurrection from the dead, then we are now like the firstborn because we now have an inheritance, a great inheritance, an eternal inheritance, an inheritance that Peter describes in 1 Peter as being an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade because it is kept in heaven for us. Is that your inheritance? Is that what you're looking forward to? Is that where your true riches are found? Then don't blow it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, we're told... Don't be like Esau. Don't sell your inheritance. Don't let anything charm you away from your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, from your fellowship with his people, which is a reflection of what we will be doing forever in eternity around the throne room of God. Don't sell your inheritance. Don't let anything charm you away from God. Not your career. 
not your mortgage, not your family, not your pleasures, not fear of ridicule. Whatever you do, don't sell your inheritance for a bowl of stew. Something that feels good for a moment, but quickly passes in the light of eternity. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy shown through the messy uh, family of Isaac. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God who, uh, who chooses, who elects out of your own free will and not according to our goodness or anything spiritual about us. Father, we uh, pray for ourselves that we would not be like Esau, that uh, we would see how foolish it is to, uh, to grab the transient, uh, fleeting pleasure uh, in exchange for eternal life. Help us to keep on trusting in you and living faithfully and looking forward to our great inheritance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.